Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, international best-selling author William Myers Jr. joins me in the interrogation room just to clear up a few things. Bill comes from a blue-collar Pennsylvania family who instilled the work ethic, which eventually propelled him to success through college, law school, and the years-long grind required to build his expertise and a private legal practice. Bill's represented and defended corporations, railroad workers, and injury victims, and has earned a highly regarded reputation as a trial attorney across the eastern seaboard, and he currently maintains offices in Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. Although he's always known he wanted to write, Bill's first publication, entitled A Criminal Defense, entered the public space for accolades and criticism in 2017 and launched into the top 10 Kindle downloads for that year, I think actually reaching number six. His 2018 release, An Engineered Injustice, is loosely based off an actual Amtrak crash. And the third book in his Philadelphia Law series, called A Killer's Alibi, landed at an internet near you this past January. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Bill. Thank you for making time to join me today. Thank you, Gavin. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we could uh, get together and make this work. I, I've uh, really enjoyed uh, reading your work, and especially this uh, this uh, last one, A Killer's Alibi. Um, I got uh, just a little bit into it, and this was my first introduction to you. So I had to had to go back uh, very quickly and start reading an engineered injustice. I'm 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 really excited to to not spoil anything for myself. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad you're reading all the books. I hope you don't <laughs> overdose on them. Well, you know it'd be a nice problem to have, right? Um, yeah. Now the uh, I'm hoping to actually get uh, get uh, a killer's alibi uh, wrapped up sometime this weekend. Probably I'm going to guess between two and 4 a.m. after I, I, I can't put it down on the nightstand. Um, for, for readers new to you, wh what do you want them to know about your Philadelphia legal series and a killer's alibi in particular? Well, <clears throat> the Philadelphia legal series is set in Philadelphia, which is my hometown. It's where I practice law. It's where I write. And the, the whole series revolves around um, kind of the same set of lawyers with um, some new clients coming in. One of the things that I think sets the series apart from other books in its genre is that all of the main characters in one way or another are morally challenged. They're all put in situations where in order to achieve an end that they believe is the right end, ultimately the right thing to do, they have to make moral compromises or they have to make deals with the devil. And they're good people, but they're put under a lot of stress. And so they do what they have to do and then they, they have to move on and live with it. It sounds like you're you're perpetually putting these folks into uh, some type of impossible scenario where it's literally a, a less of the lesser of the evil's choice and none of them are good. That's that's exactly right. If if they do the technically right thing, a an injustice will result. If mm -hmm. they do the technically wrong thing, in the end they'll achieve justice. Yeah, that's a really tough position to, to be in. Even even fictionally, it's uncomfortable. Um, 
you know, and I, I, I'm really excited to see where all this goes because it's, it's, um, I, I think a question that everyone at some point in their life probably has some type of dealing with or can relate to having, having some choice like that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think as people from time to time, we find ourselves in a situation where if we play strictly by the rules, somebody who we love is going to get hurt. Somebody we care about is going to get hurt or some other type of injustice is going to be done. So we, you know, we got to, we got to make a choice. The Mm -hmm. ends don't always justify the means, but sometimes they do. And I like putting my characters into these very uncomfortable positions, these very high pressure positions, because I think that makes for entertaining stories. People want to read about um, high stress situations. They want to read about situations where the stakes are very high for the characters, mm-hmm. because I think it's exciting. It gets your it gets your blood up. Yes, yeah, and you know, in in what uh, what I've read of of your work so far, um, you know, I, I'm I'm very very impressed with it. It's very very good writing, and it feels uh, feels very much to me like there's a lot of influences in your writing. Like um, I would guess. Folks probably like Raymond Chandler, John Grisham, Michael Crichton, Don Winslow. It's very hard-boiled, but um, not um, not overkill. And it makes me wonder who, if there's any other authors that, or other, if there are authors that you aspire to to emulate, or what? Who were your influences that made you want to write? Well, um, <clears throat> my first my first influence in this genre was Scott Turow. Um, I think, and if you remember, this is going back a while, but if you remember the book Presumed Innocent. Yes. Um, a very well-written book, followed up by Burden of Proof, another well-written book mm-hmm. um, involving trial lawyers, but where there's a lot of psychological drama going on between the characters. And those books and some other books by, by Scott Rowe, as well as some of the others that you mentioned, really made me, when I sat down to start writing this series, to not make it just be, you know, legal procedurals, you know, just courtroom mm-hmm. dramas, although that's, that's in there because the characters are lawyers and I'm a lawyer, but really books that revolve around high-pressure situations involving interpersonal relationships between the characters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you see... Um, you see husband and wives having a hard time. You have you see brothers at each other's throats and finally coming to terms. You see all manner of human folly, vanity, greed, ambition, all the things that that drive us in many ways, many unhealthy ways that drive us. And the characters have to come to grips with all this stuff in the context of legal situations. In in all of the books, somebody is accused of murder or murders, and they're on trial or they're in prison, they're fighting for their life, and their attorney and their legal team is out there trying to figure out how to win the day for them, how yes. to prove that they were innocent. Sometimes with limited cooperation from the person sitting in prison. <laughs> 
exactly. And and it, you know, in the case of a, a killer's alibi, which you're reading, where the protagonist, Mick McFarland, has to represent Jimmy Nunzio, who is a you know a big time Philadelphia mobster, accused of murdering his daughter's lover right in front of her. And Mick is used to being the master puppeteer, but Jimmy Nunzio is also used to being the master puppeteer. They're both very Machiavellian characters, and they end up kind of doing a dance around each other. Mick is trying to get Nunzio to tell him exactly what happened in this warehouse where this murder took place. And Nunzio is, um, he's holding back information, and Mick can't figure out why. Nunzio just keeps saying, I'll let you know when the time is right. Yes. Yeah. You know, and even uh, as, a, as I'm reading this and trying to, you know, you, you kind of put yourself, you know, in some degree in, in the story or, you know, assume the, the character's point of view. And reading through this as, as uh, the chapters are in, in Mick's point of view where, you know, he's asking for this information. And internally, I'm thinking, man, I don't want to know that. <laughs> I, I, I don't want you to tell me because then, you know, you're going to know I know, you know. And uh, I also, you know, when, uh, you know, he gets the way, especially the way in which he gets hired, I was like, oh, man, Mick, this is going to be bad for you, brother, you know. I, I yeah. And it is bad because he has to face he has to face off against Nunzio and the entire Nunzio family, including Jimmy's manipulative wife, Rachel, and the daughter that Jimmy Nunzio doesn't understand, doesn't quite get. Mm -hmm. um, he's he's in this chess match against all these people. And I know, Gavin, I know that what you said, a lot of times lawyers, criminal defense lawyers, I know, will say, if my client did it, I don't want him to tell me mm -hmm. because then I can't put him on the stand. I can't have him perjure himself and say he didn't do it. Mick is a type of lawyer, though. He wants to know the truth. He wants to know what really happened um, because he he needs to know that in order to figure out a way to win. Sure. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in, in, uh, in put myself in his point of view, I, I would be more concerned um, having a mob boss confess to me that he murdered a guy and then have him suspect me of ratting him out later. <laughs> that's my, just my, <laughs> my cynical cop take on it, you know? I'm like, oh, my God, that's a tough spot to be in. Um, yeah, and and it puts pressure. It does put pressure on Mick because you don't disappoint Jimmy Nunzio, so he knows no. he, he knows yeah. I have to win this. Now I I've uh, this is all uh, as you mentioned all, all set in in Philadelphia, and I, I've I've been to Philly twice, which apparently makes me think I'm entitled to act like the city nine year old friends and not refer to it by its full name. Right, we're on nickname basis now. Right, um, right. But you know, in if America, you call it Philly. Especially if you've had a cheesesteak. Yes. Uh, did you happen to stop off at Pat's by any chance? Have get a get a cheesesteak? So we we went to. This has been such a lifetime ago. We uh, we left the airport, get on a tat and a cab, and hold them to take us straight to the closest Philly cheesesteak. Uh, and we wanted something off of a corner kiosk or a, 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 a roadside stand. And uh, we ended up at. Um, this market, I can't remember the, the name of it, but it's like a full block indoor market. Um, the Reading Terminal Market. Yeah, yeah, that sounds yep. right. And it yep, was absolutely, 
you know, it's the best cheesesteak I've ever had with, you know, grease running down on my elbows. It was fantastic, but you know, <laughs> yeah. it, was, uh, it was wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, the, the grease tells me it was a Philly hoagie. <laughs> <cheese> steak. <laughs> you know, in the, the, the city, it, um, you know, America's not all that old, um, but, you know, the cities, especially where you work, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, are the oldest cities in, in, in our nation that are, you know, still, uh, you know, major sources of commerce. And Philadelphia, much like Boston to me, feels um, like this really wonderful mix of, of history and new growth, uh, blue collar hustle, uh, multi-generational resilience. I mean, you can almost feel the fight and the people there, not like the simmering violence of walking into a biker bar, but kind of like the opposite of the Southern California vacation commercials where life is colorful, colorful and easy, right? Um, oh yeah. yeah. Like Philly, Philly has, a, has a lot of fight in it. We all, you know, we all have a lot of fight in us. Um, a lot of that has to do with you know, years of watching struggling sports teams. Although I have to say, you know, Philadelphia Flying. Eagles, I have to say it over and over again. <laughs> Every chance you get, right? You know, Every chance I get. I'll come around for a while. Um, now, the uh, with with you growing up in Philadelphia, um, you know, the detail that, that you put in your books with the landmarks and the locations, um, I mean, it, you can very easily as a reader put yourself in <clears throat> Um, in the books, in in the places where they, where all this is happening, um, do you struggle at all to to try to capture the 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 grit and the spirit of the city um, in your books, or is that just naturally like I've lived there so long, I'm just writing about my own life at that point? Well, I mean, I, it's not a struggle for me. I I work every day in downtown Philadelphia. So most of the places that I'm writing about, at least if they are right, you know, in the business district, I see every day. Um, I also know the working class neighborhoods and Philadelphia really is, I mean, it really is a city of big neighborhoods. We're one of the biggest cities in the country, but really our downtown business district is maybe 20 blocks by 30 blocks long and wide, but we have these vast, vast neighborhoods of you know just street after street of two and three story row houses surrounding center city and that's those neighborhoods are what really defines philadelphia now with uh you writing about lawyers being a lawyer what are your biggest pet peeves about the way attorneys are portrayed in books tv and film <laughs> well on it's easy on tv my biggest pet peeve is a lawyer gets a case and it goes to trial the next day and his file, his file on the case is a quarter of an inch thick. Yeah. Um, in real life, you get a case and it may be two years before you get to trial mm -hmm. and you have boxes and boxes of files and you've taken dozens of depositions and interviewed all kinds of people. Uh, it's a whole lot more work being a lawyer than it looks like it is on TV. You know, and even, um, you know, some of the series that seem to portray or, or try to portray more of the, the legal procedure or the legal drama, like, uh, you know, law and order is the first one that kind of comes mm -hmm. to mind, but even in law and order, they all that often are not especially kind or three dimensional to the defense. You know, there Correct. are a few defense attorney characters in that series that are actual, you know, fully three-dimensional people who have, you know, integrity and interest and flaws. And, you know, they're not just this, this caricature of a, of a character. 
Um, has anyone that in, in, in your experience, anyone really effectively portrayed defense counsel in the way that they write or, or, or put together in, in entertainment? Um, well, I like um, Michael Connolly's uh, character, mm-hmm. Mickey Haller, I think. Um, he's a three-dimensional character. He has a lot of flaws. Um, I like the way, I like the way that he's developed that character. Um, oh boy. It it is kind of hard because most of the books Mm -hmm. are not written from the perspective of the defense attorneys. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a really, um, pretty ironic. I'm, for the, the, the 18 people who follow this podcast, <laughs> most of them I know it. Um, they, uh, you know, the, the, the folks who follow us regularly will know that, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a civil libertarian and have a, a soft spot for, for the, uh, upholding the, the right and the just in a little bit of an ideological way. Um, but that really kind of, you know, um, leads into this issue of, the lack of, you know, defense attorney protagonists um, that are that are something other than a caricature. Um, Steve Barry and I, when I uh, we had our interview I don't know, a couple months ago, um, he writes a successful Cotton Malone series and and used to work in criminal defense. During the interview, he and I spoke about the important constitutional place that criminal defense attorneys hold in our republic, and in my opinion, is a as a private citizen, the three people with the most incredible responsibility and authority to protect the population and their rights are good moral cops, ethical investigating journalists, and defense and civil attorneys who have the integrity to appropriately represent their clients and defend them when necessary from corporate harm and, and illegal or overzealous government intrusion. Um, to me, that places kind of an equal burden on those characters and on the the real life folks in those positions, um, analogous to, you know, being a cop. How do you try to help your readers understand the weight of your fictional attorney's burdens to secure some manner of justice on behalf of their clients? Well, when I have Mick, who's mainly the protagonist throughout the series, think about what he does. And he's in his own mind. He, He thinks a lot about his constitutional responsibility. He has, he's not just fighting, and this is true of all criminal defense attorneys, when they're fighting for an individual client, they're not just fighting for that client, they're fighting to make sure that the system is fair. They're, they're fighting to make sure that it's a level playing field, that um, the prosecutors uh, or the police are not hiding evidence, withholding evidence, um, you know, pressuring people into false confessions, mm-hmm. which is why if you ask criminal defense attorneys, what do you say when somebody comes up to you and says, how can you represent a criminal? How can you represent someone who did this or did that? A lot of times what they'll say is, I'm, I'm not just representing that person. I'm representing the whole system. I'm mm-hmm. representing everybody in their rights to make sure that the rights that the rights are protected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know that that is a, a wonderful way to explain it, and it uh, is I think a very tremendous burden that um, you know gets 
uh, I hate to keep using the word caricatured, but um, gets this unfair portrayal in, in fiction and even in fact, right? You know, I mean, someone, someone needs to defend the most heinous people accused of the most heinous crimes. Um, even those individuals have, you know, rights under our republic and they have the entitlement to a competent defense. And if those people in, in their moment of vulnerability are allowed to be, the government gets to ride roughshod over them, they maybe are just a starting point to a tinderbox, right? And, you know, it's uh, rights are very easy to give away and very hard to get back. So I, yeah, I, 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 agree. I, I agree. You and, your, you and your folks, Gary. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that you, you put it the right way. It's if, if you, if you say to yourself, well, everybody has rights except for. Yes. Except for work. someone I don't like. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, the starting point and now you're going down a slippery slope because that you know that cutoff point will always lower and lower and lower so you kind of you, you judge you judge a legal system by how well it treats the worst among us mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a, a very very fair way to look at it um in also looking at this from the outside that you know, your work of representing the public would probably provide a constant stream of inspiration for, uh, for your novels uh, where, you know, the truth really is stranger than fiction. Uh, how do you work to keep the details from your Superman day job from bleeding over too heavily into your Clark Kent nightlife as a writer? <laughs> well, um, the, only, the only book that I wrote where I had to be careful to not let that happen was an engineered injustice because an engineered injustice is based upon the crash of a large Amtrak passenger train. Mm -hmm. um, and such an event did in fact happen in Philadelphia a few years ago, different yes. type of crash, but um, this still the same result, a big train crash. Um, and I, I knew things from the real train crash that I kind of changed a little bit here and a little bit there and put them, put them into an engineered injustice. Uh, the people aren't the same. The characters aren't the same. The lawyers, uh, thank God, aren't the same because the lawyers in an engineered injustice, at least half mm -hmm. of the lawyers are very bad people. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, but um, no, but, but it, it's funny, Gavin, because I do a lot, I represent a lot of injured railroad workers. Mm -hmm. um, so I know about the railroad. I know what makes trains go and what makes them crash. And when the real train crashed in Philadelphia, I knew probably within an hour what had happened because I called a couple engineers who did the same run and mm -hmm. they told me, here's how this happened or here's how they guessed it to happen. Sure. And two years later, the NTSB came out and said, yeah, here's what happened. Um, but it, it helped me just that knowledge of the railroad mm -hmm. helped me in making an engineered injustice realistic when it comes to what kind of track equipment is out, out there and what are the different jobs that are done on the railroad. Um, and just what's the whole feel of what it, what it's like to work on the railroad. Yeah. And the, uh, so what, from what I've, I've read of an engineered injustice so far, um, it reminded me a lot of Michael Crichton's airframe um, with, you know, the, some, maybe some, some, 
some misplay and, and some what I what I think is probably going to be some some government regulatory agency issues. I'm I'm really excited to to get through that and see how see how that one ends up. Um, I've talked with uh, other authors with relevant personal experience in um, like the military spec ops community, other cops, right, right. Um, about how aspiring authors um, or people were starting to write a new series, um, how they can go about getting, you know, some personal contacts or technical advice. Uh, how would an author who wanted to get analogous authenticity from an attorney go about that? Do they show up in the lobby with uh, donuts and coffee and ask about your innermost fears, successes, and challenges? Or how, do, how would someone try to build that relationship with a practicing attorney? Um, well, I mean, the first thing I would the first thing I would do is if I'm an aspiring writer and I want to write about um, trials and the whole legal environment, I would go watch some trials. There is there is literally nothing that compares to actually sitting in a courtroom and watching a trial from beginning to end, whether it's a civil trial or a criminal trial, mm-hmm. um, because that's where you see how people actually um, sit, stand, move about, how they talk, how they interact with the judge and the witness and the opposing counsel. And in a lot of ways, it's not like you see it on TV no. or the movies and some, mm-hmm. some ways it is, but you can't, you know, it would be like trying to write about football without ever having gone to a football game. You just can't do it. Um, and there are, you know, most people have friends who are lawyers and, and lawyers like to believe it or not, Gavin, lawyers like to talk about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And every trial lawyer loves telling war stories. So if you have a friend who's a trial lawyer and you're a writer and you want to find out what it's like to be in trial, what were you thinking and what were you feeling? Go to a lawyer, you know, who's a trial attorney and say, give me a war story. Tell me something. Give me a good case that you tried. And yeah, bring him a donut or a beer or whatever. (laughs) And he'll be more than happy to talk about himself and and uh, paint himself out as quite the heroic figure. Sure. Uh, One of the. One of the recurring themes on this podcast is that it only takes about a decade of nonstop blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. What was your journey like from inspiration to published writer to international bestseller? Well, it's kind of a, it's a funny story. I'd been writing for years. I mean, I've been writing for 25 years and I got married 19 years ago and I would show my books to my wife. And honey, read this book, honey, read this book. (laughs) And she would read the book and she would say, this is terrible. Um, And she did that three or four times in a row. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a commercially viable novel. I'm going to be very serious about it, very disciplined about it. And I sat down and it took me two years to write a criminal defense. And I sent some query letters out to publishers. Never heard back from them. And so the book sat for a year and a half, two years, and I happened to be at a professional conference of lawyers who represent injured railroad workers like I do. Mm. And one of the lawyers there, his name is uh, Anderson Harp. He's written some books. He's gotten them published. So I went up to him, Andy, how, how did you become published? I said, I sent query letters to publishers, and I never heard back. 
And he said, Bill, you never will hear back. They, they just won't take a submission. They'll throw it out unless it's sent by an agent. Agents yeah. are the new gatekeepers. Goes to the slush um, pile. Yeah. It, it goes right to the slush pile. So I said, okay, Andy, how do I get an agent? And he said, you can't get an agent. <laughs> <laughs> he said, is your next door neighbor an agent? Do they like, do they like you? I said, no. I said, Andy, come on. There's got to be a way to get an agent. And what he told me, and, and this would be helpful to people out there who are, are writers who want to get published, the big legacy publishing houses used to have very deep benches of editors, you know, um, acquisition editors, copy editors, and they've, they've weaned those benches down um, because of the consolidation within the industry and the competition. And he said to me, if you can get an editor who used to be a, a serious editor at a big time publisher to look at your book and edit it if he thinks it's worth editing and publishing, he can get you an agent. And then Andy was kind enough to hook me up with his editor, uh, Ed Stackler, who was a big time editor. And Ed agreed to look at, look at the book um, and he read it and he said, it, it needs work but it, it's of publishable quality if it has the work. So he did the editing and he got me to an agent and the agent got me to the publisher and it got published. Wow. That's a fantastic ride. And that's, that was the, the, the first book you put out went to like number six on Kindle, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was a that criminal defense. Yeah. Congratulations. That's, that's an excellent success. Thank um, you. Now, uh, philanthropy is uh, something that's very important to me. I, I think that there's nothing better people can do for their own soul than, than helping those who can offer them nothing in return. I also know you have at least two favorite charities that you're passionate about. Uh, where do you volunteer your time, and how did you get involved with them? Well, I do, I do two things. First, we have a Philadelphia Ronald McDonald House. Um, here, and in fact, that's where the Ronald McDonald House has got started, was right here in Philadelphia. And they um, are just now completing a giant addition to their facility. Uh, and if people don't know what they do, Ronald McDonald House provides free room and board for families of mostly children who are treating for life-threatening illnesses. Uh, in Philadelphia, we have CHOP, the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, and kids come here from all over the world with potentially life-threatening illnesses, and a lot of times their parents cannot afford to stay in a hotel room for six weeks mm -hmm. while they're getting their treatment. Uh, the Philadelphia Ronald McDonald House puts them up for free, drives them, they have bus service, they, they drive the parents, they drive the kids over to get uh, the treatment. It's, it's amazing. It's wonderful. Um, I donate to them. I encourage everybody else to donate to them. Um, I also do some innocence project work. I've started reviewing cases at the initial intake stage for the initial determination of whether we think that, you know, it, it's a good case. And on my, my little TV show that I do, uh, about once a month, I just interviewed Marissa Bluestein, who's the head of the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, and she talked all about the project. She explained the nuances, the intricacies of it, 
and what it's like to represent people who are actually innocent of a crime, but were convicted and are spending and have spent many times decades in prison. Yeah, and that's a, a really, uh, that's the nightmare scenario, right? That you it is. end up being convicted wrongfully um, of something that you can't prove you didn't do. That's you know something I think people don't necessarily appreciate enough is that you cannot prove a negative. I can't prove yeah. I didn't kill that guy. I can only prove I was somewhere else when he died. And yeah, and Gavin, the scary part is even sometimes when you can prove you were somewhere else, sometimes where you have an airtight alibi, mm -hmm. juries don't believe it. Yeah. And people are in prison because juries didn't believe alibis. And people who were 20, 30 miles away when a crime was committed are convicted. Yeah, and that's, you know, the, I would like to think, you know, in my, my ideological way that, you know, these things shouldn't happen because there are supposed to be so many gatekeepers in the whole process, right? Between the cop that takes the call on patrol to the detective who shows up to, you know, the detective sergeant who approves the case, and then it goes to the prosecutor's mm -hmm. office and goes through a number of people there before it ever has a chance of heard before a judge or, or jury. And, you know, at some point, those things that shouldn't be that, you know, we should be able to, to dismiss, um, someone in the process should have thrown up a red flag. Um, you know, and yeah, it's terrifying to me to know that that is a realistic possibility, however remote. Um, yeah, it, <clears throat> it happens because we're, we're people, we're flawed, we're imperfect, yeah. even the best intentioned police officer, the best intention prosecutor will sometimes make mistakes. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's unfortunately part of our, part of our DNA. <laughs> it, yeah. It, yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, out of respect for your time, I'll get to get see the rest of my questions for your, your next interview at the next release. Um, I do have two more though, that I, I kind of run everybody through on here. Um, okay. Do you have a favorite fictional detective or investigator or one that's holding a little bit more of your reading attention and esteem right now? Um, the fictional investigator is Tommy McFarland. He is the brother of the protagonist, Mick McFarland. And Tommy, Tommy and Mick have a, a troubled history. And Tommy served hard time for um, committing a violent crime. Um, he's a, he's a real hard-boiled guy. He still has prison tats. He's as solid as marble, but underneath all of it, he's a very good guy. So keeping that in mind, mm -hmm. God forbid it should come to pass, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, would you want uh -huh. Tommy McFarlane to investigate your case? It's your murder. You can pick anybody you want. I would want Tommy McFarlane to investigate it because he would do whatever needs to be done to get to the truth. Okay. <laughs> and this is always the part of the conversation that, that brings us inevitably to uh, to rough justice that people are willing to tolerate for their own murders. <laughs> yes. Yes. I want the guy that kills me to answer for it. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
But it's been uh, been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Bill. Where can readers connect with you? Find your works, maybe a newsletter, a blog, a private diary. <clears throat> yeah, um, well, the books you can get on Amazon. Um, I have a I have a Twitter. It's at William Myers Jr. Facebook is William L Myers Jr. And Instagram is at William L Myers Jr. Period. Fantastic. Well, I greatly appreciate your time, sir, and uh, we'll uh, we'll get you back to back to your regularly scheduled uh, lawlessness. <laughs> Thanks, Gavin. You too. <laughs> now, you've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. A copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this uh, this episode's guest has been international best-selling author and attorney William Myers Jr. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.